0: This is a Dalina University production. Hello, and welcome back. My name is Konstantin Andreev, and this is the third lecture in the Universal Language series. In the first two lectures, we looked at some important languages throughout history that have facilitated communication between people with different mother tongues. In particular, we considered the case of English, arguably the most universal lingua franca the world has ever seen it is no accident that so far we've only been talking about so-called natural languages the native tongues of conquerors and colonizers of merchant fleets and slave owners of rich sitters and powerful rulers they have always been picked up and used by those at the receiving end sometimes grudgingly sometimes enthusiastically but mostly as a matter of course people tend to learn whatever language it takes to get on with their lives that's the reality of international communication However most philosophers will tell you that there is a world of difference between what is and what ought to be. And quite a few people have believed that in matters of language this discrepancy is too great to ignore. First of all, as we have seen, natural languages are complex and, uh, not to put too fine a term in it, often downright messy. What's even worse, much of this messiness doesn't serve any particular purpose. It's just a matter of historical accident. Let's have a look at some of the most notorious excesses that natural lingua franca's are guilty of. With the notable exception of English, all big European languages have something called grammatical gender. Russian, the lingua franca of the former Soviet Union, has three genders. This means that every Russian noun has to be either masculine or feminine or something in between. Any Russian will tell you that your computer is a he, its operating system is a she, and the electricity that keeps it going is gender neutral. Sometimes the form of the noun will give you a clue as to which gender it is. Sometimes it won't. In either case, if you want to say something like my brand new computer crashed, you have to make up your mind somehow, because brand new and crashed also have to show the gender of computer. Needless to say, the way different languages assign gender to their nouns is almost entirely random. In Russian, a book is a girl. In French, he is a boy. In German, it's unisex. Speaking of German, this erstwhile international language of science, for no particular reason, has to insist on very special word order in its sentences. Here is the last sentence of Einstein's article on the electrodynamics of moving bodies, where he first presented special relativity. Zum Schluss bemerke ich, dass mir beim Arbeiten an dem hier behandelten Probleme mein Freund und Kollege M. Bessot treu zur Seite stand und dass ich demselben manche wertvolle Anregen verdanke. Which, to keep some of the flavor of the original, we can translate as follows. In conclusion, note I that in working at the problem my friend and colleague M. Bessot to me his loyal assistance provided and that I him for several valuable suggestions thank. Note the verbs in bold. They have to be where they are. You simply can't move them anywhere else as long as you want to speak good German. If you think that's random and not really necessary for an international language, you're absolutely right. And here is something else, just as random. Blamed him for, accused him of, charged him with. Why not just use for in all three cases? For example, And why does one have to be Master Yoda to be able to say him for corrupting the English language they blamed? And why bother with this the thing anyway? Even those complications that do serve some sort of purpose are hardly ever indispensable. Definite and indefinite articles, palatalized consonants, 20 distinct vowels, plurality markers, person endings on verbs, any endings anywhere, whatever feature you pick, there's bound to be a language out there spoken by millions of people that gets along just fine without it. A number of attempts have been made to render big languages more user-friendly. Many people will have heard of basic English, proposed by Charles Ogden back in 1930. The average educated native speaker of a European language is said to know about 50,000 words, basic English, Ogden claimed to have reduced that number to just 850. He was particularly intent on eliminating English verbs, going so far as to get rid of to want and to eat. To a significant extent, this drastic vocabulary purge was achieved by cheating. For instance, Ogden's basic English relies heavily on idiomatic phrasal verbs such as get off, go by, give up and put up with. But Ogden didn't count these lexical units as words. In general, Basic English had to use a lot of unwieldy circumlocutions, which could be at least as obscure as the terms they replaced. However, the real doom of projects such as Basic English, World English or Weltdeutsch is not their structure or their vocabulary. Their real problem is, who would want to learn an abridged version of English or German specifically designed for stupid foreigners? Why bother with English light if anyone who is anyone speaks the real thing? Which means that we're back to square one where we have to face the other major problem with natural languages as lingua francas. Whether they have genders, or rigid word order, or too many vowels to keep track of, they all grow big and important at the expense of other natural languages. And you always end up with some people enjoying an unfair advantage over a lot of other people, for no good reason. To many of us, this injustice seems just as natural as the languages involved. We hardly even notice that native speakers of languages of wider communication have an easier time getting a good education, doing science, doing business, traveling, even selling pop music. They are seen as linguistic role models and lawgivers. This was true of French speakers in Europe two centuries ago. It was true of Russian speakers in the Soviet Union. It's true of Anglophones today. Quite apart from their unfair economic benefits, the scale of one's language often goes to one's head. Of course, people have a general tendency to see in their own mother tongue the pinnacle of linguistic evolution. But this understandable bias can turn to insufferable linguistic arrogance if your language hits the big time. Here's a French author on the subject of the awesomeness of French. I doubt whether there has ever existed since the time of the Greeks a language which reflected thought so transparently, well-handed, It makes clear the most difficult ideas, and this is one of the reasons for its long termination in Europe. Here's a Russian linguist, I'm sorry to tell you, of the Stalin era on the awesomeness of Russian. The sheer might and greatness of the Russian language are indisputable evidence of the great strength of the Russian people. Here's Bill Bryson, the American author of a best-selling book about English. The richness of the English vocabulary and the wealth of available synonyms means that English speakers can often draw shades of distinction unavailable to non-English speakers, and later on in the same book, English also has a commendable tendency toward conciseness, in contrast to many languages. Unfortunately, I could go on quoting this kind of silliness indefinitely. It's easy to see, then, why many people have argued that a true universal language shouldn't be anyone's mother tongue. Some have suggested adopting a dead language as a lingua franca, but others have pointed out that dead natural languages are just as messy as living ones. A resurrected Sumerian would certainly inconvenience everyone in equal measure, but do we really want to deal with all those grammatical excesses, magnificent as they might be? Wouldn't it make more sense to just sit down and simply create a neutral, universal language that would be easy to learn? It has to be admitted at this point that the creator of Volapük, the first relatively successful planned language, uh, didn't quite set out to make life easy for anyone. Johann Martin Schleyer, a German priest, equipped his universal language with a whole battery of features that range from a bit random to completely raving mad, and unnecessary. To name just one, Schleyer seems to have been a fan of complex verb conjugations. He used English as the main source of Volapük vocabulary, but he must have been unimpressed by the relative scarcity of English verb forms. In Volapük, a verb can have several hundred forms, depending on its subject, tense and mood. The tenses include such a must-have as the future perfect. Here's how different people will have loved in Volapük. The Volapük moods feature a full-blown subjunctive, the kind of thing that you find, for example, in educated Italian. Though uneducated Italian, not to mention hundreds of other languages, manages perfectly well without it. To be fair, all Volapuk verbs are completely regular, and you don't really have to use the future perfect all the time. To give Schleier further credit, he did try to get rid of some complex consonant clusters and minimize the use of the sound r, which many people find hard to pronounce even after a lifetime of trying. He also wanted to keep Volapuk words short, ideally no longer than one syllable. As a result, though, he would often end up with a bunch of words that were confusingly similar. Schlei also had an understandable soft spot for the German umlauts, what linguists call rounded front vowels, as in pyk and löw. Unlike a, e, or u, these vowels are fairly rare in the world's languages, and they don't come easy if your mother tongue doesn't have them. It is permissible to wonder who would want to learn a language like that, unless it had a Nami a navy, or at least a medium-sized economy, to show for itself. Yet, as far as we know, thousands of people actually did learn Volapük in the decade following its publication in 1880. By 1889, 268 Volapük clubs had sprung up all over the world, including places such as Shanghai, Buenos Aires and New Orleans. A thousand people had been certified as Volapük teachers. There were two dozen periodicals in the language. In Europe, businesses were beginning to say, we correspond in Volapük in their advertisements. In the United States, the New York Times reported in 1888, in many towns where Volapük has obtained a footing, Volapük sociables, at which no other language is permitted to be used, have become a popular diversion shared by young and old alike. Such was the sweeping popularity of Schleyer's creation, that one English scholar, in a report to the London Philological Society, was moved to conclude, All those who desire the insubstantiation of that phantom of a universal language which has flitted before so many minds from the days of the Tower of Babel should, I think, add their voice to the many thousands who are ready to exclaim, L'Ifonus volapuk! Long live volapuk! To understand how all of this was possible, we need to remember that sometimes people are driven to action by things other than fear or immediate material gain. We also need some historical background. The idea to invent a whole language is not as outlandish as some might think. In fact, people have been doing it for centuries. Starting in the 1600s, way before Volapük's time, European intellectuals devised dozens of universal languages. Even young Isaac Newton couldn't resist the trend. There is a sketch of a universal language in one of his notebooks. Because Latin was still living out its last days as the lingua franca of educated Europeans, Most of these languages were meant to facilitate philosophical thought rather than international communication. Partly because of that, none of them ever left the pages of the volumes that presented them, except perhaps to serve as a topic of conversation in polite society. By the mid-nineteenth century, things had changed. Latin was still taught in schools, but no longer used, and the languages of powerful European states were busy elbowing for Lebensraum. French still dominated diplomacy, German dominated science. English had the biggest empire. Russian stretched from Warsaw to the Pacific and was entering Central Asia. Because their speakers regularly went to war with each other, none of these languages seemed fit to serve as a bridge between nations, and language inventors shifted their focus from philosophy to actual communication between people. Only a neutral international language, they believed, would bring about mutual understanding and the end of strife. Finally, as linguist Erica Okrant points out in Sam Green's documentary The Universal Language, this was the age where it wasn't so unusual to believe that a social engineering experiment could work, and launching an invented universal language was certainly social engineering writ large. All of this may help to explain why, despite its unwieldiness, Volopuk was met with an enthusiasm that is almost hard to believe. But, sadly for Johann Schleyer, this enthusiasm soon changed camps. In 1887 Ludwig Zamenhof, an eye doctor from the town of Białystok in Poland, published his own Internazie Lingvo, under the pseudonym Dr. Esperanto. Only a couple of years later Volapük supporters started deserting to Esperanto in droves. Esperanto doesn't have any rounded front vowels, it doesn't have much verb conjugation. The French, English and German roots in its vocabulary are easily recognizable. Esperanto certainly seems easier to learn than Volapük, but that was not the only reason. We have seen that the fortune of a language has little to do with its grammar or vocabulary, and even planned languages are not really an exception. Volapük's real undoing was Schleier's unwillingness to let go of the language and let others fix it. He wanted to exercise absolute control over his creation, but you can only have total control over a language if you don't let anyone else use it, in other words, if the language is dead. A living language is not just a bunch of rules and words set in stone. It's a community of speakers who constantly negotiate and renegotiate those words and rules. The creator of Esperanto was fully aware of that. Only six of the forty pages of the first Esperanto textbook, plus a glued-in vocabulary list, were about the language itself. The rest was essentially a call to humanity to first rally behind the idea of a universal language, and then sort out the linguistic detail. The booklet came with several pledge cards, The reader was invited to send in a signed promise to learn Esperanto once ten million people had vowed to do the same. Zamenhof also encouraged readers to send in comments on his language and suggestions for its improvement. Right on page two it says, an international language, like every national one, is the property of society, and the author renounces all personal rights in it forever. True to this spirit, the core rules and vocabulary of Esperanto were not finalized until the first World Esperanto Congress in 1905, almost 20 years later. It's fair to say that Esperanto was launched in the right way, at the right time. If we don't count modern Hebrew, Esperanto remains the most successful constructed language to date. In stark contrast to hundreds of other constructed lingua francas, it has fluent users all over the globe, thousands of them. It has had a continuous international speech community for over a hundred years. The concise encyclopedia of the original literature of Esperanto, which came out in English a few years ago, runs to 740 pages. There are countless websites both in and about the language. And yet Esperanto hasn't become what Zamenhof wanted it to be – a neutral second language for the whole of humanity. Why not? I will not go into the detail of Esperanto's structure. You can find exhaustive information at lernu.net the best online resource for learning the language that I know of. Over the years, Esperanto has been taken to task for many of its features, and people have come up with dozens of improved Esperantos. The most obvious criticism is perhaps the exclusively European origin of Esperanto vocabulary. This kind of bias in a supposedly neutral language just doesn't fly as easily today as it did in the late 19th century. At the same time, Esperanto is hardly more Eurocentric than, um, for instance, English, and it's certainly more politically neutral than, for instance, English. It may not be the easiest invented language on offer, but let me tell you, it's way easier to learn than English. I know this from my own experience of learning both. For one thing Esperanto is completely regular. You don't have any random prepositions. You don't have to fret about word order. You don't have to worry about your accent. Above all, you don't have to spend years trying to produce over a dozen dozen distinct vowels or at least to hear a difference between them. Why, oh why, does the final victory of Esperanto keep not happening? Of course, the real problem with Esperanto is not its structure. It's the sad fact that idealism and good intentions can only get you so far when it comes to spreading a language. At the risk of belaboring the point, people don't normally learn languages that only might come in handy at some unspecified point in the future. They learn languages that they have to use here and now, In fact, people often have to use a language even without learning it. Many of us tend to think of second language acquisition as a more or less orderly, long-term process with a lot of ground to cover. Whether you do lots of old-school grammar exercises or use more enlightened, communicative techniques, the idea is the same. First you learn some basics, then you build on that, mastering ever more subtle or ever less frequent things until, hopefully, you reach functional proficiency in the language. But for many, if not most adults throughout history, this kind of language learning would have been an unaffordable luxury. As often as not, when grown-up speakers of very different languages got together, they would have neither the time nor the resources for second language acquisition as we understand it today. Indian traders selling spices to Portuguese merchants, Chinese traders doing business with Russians in the Far East, slave workers on Spanish, French, Dutch, English or American plantations brought across the ocean from different parts of Africa, all these people badly needed a common language, but didn't have enough leisure for grammatical subtleties or sophisticated vocabulary. The many makeshift lingua francas that they came up with as a result are known as pidgin languages or pidgins. Imagine that you have just started learning a foreign language. Imagine that you badly need to communicate something. You grasp at whatever words you've already picked up. You put them in whatever order seems natural to you. You throw in words from the other languages you know. You skip grammatical markers. You don't know or care about subtle semantic distinctions. But you do get your message across, and that's what really matters. Now, imagine doing this again and again, with a lot of other people stuck in the same situation. Imagine doing it until you and the others develop a relatively stable linguistic mishmash with a few simple rules and a couple hundred words. It may lack sophistication, but it's easy to learn, and it gets the job done. Personally, I find it symbolic that the original lingua franca was a pigeon. Centuries before high-minded intellectuals created Volapük and Esperanto in the quiet of their studies, generations of Mediterranean merchants did the same the grassroots way. As far as we know, Lingua Franca was based on Provençal and various Italian dialects such as Venetian and Genoese with a smattering of Arabic. It was never properly documented and there must have been plenty of variation depending on the century and region. But we do have enough samples to know that, like all pigeons, Lingua Franca was a language stripped down to the absolutely essential. Let's have a look at how much grammar it takes to say Go in four different languages. As you can see, if you never want to go wrong with Go in standard Italian, you need to be able to build more forms than can fit onto the screen. Know that the forms in bold are irregular. English is less exuberant, but it does force you to make over a dozen subtle distinctions every time you want to talk about going. Know that the forms in bold are irregular. Esperanto does have the inbuilt potential to make forms equivalent to I am going or I will have gone, but the absolute majority of Esperanto users never go beyond these six forms. Lingua franca, at least in one of its incarnations, had a grand total of one way to say go, regardless of the subject, tense or anything else. Andar. Looking at pigeons may be the best way to realize just how much redundancy there is in language. As linguist Roger Les put it, a natural language will have a lot of material that simply makes speakers do things, whether or not there is any need to do them. Of course, some redundancy can be useful. As Volopuk's example shows, short words that only differ in one sound can be harder to remember than longer words with a lot of different sounds. But much of linguistic redundancy is completely expendable. Me andar tomorrow you know right away that I'm not talking about the past, I don't need to use any special past form of the verb for you to figure that out. Me andar five years back. You know that I'm not talking about the future and that there's more than one year involved. Suppose he andar five years back, me too andar. If he had gone five years ago, I would have gone too. One great thing about pigeons is that they use very few abstract grammatical elements. There's hardly ever anything like the D in she-blogged or like the ing in she's blogging, or like the z in dog's. You rarely find grammatical words such as the in the cat, or would in he would quit. Tense, mood, aspect, relationships between different parts of the sentence, all these things are either left to the context, or else they're expressed by transparent lexical terms, like suppose for if. In the words of linguist Peter Mühlhäusler, those who are in the business of designing new or modifying existing auxiliary languages are well advised to take a close look at pigeons. Incidentally, sapos is used to mean if in tok pisin, the main lingua franca of Papua New Guinea. Despite its name, tok pisin is no longer a pigeon, it's a creole. In other words, though it started out as a pigeon, it has long since become a lexically rich language with a sizable community of native speakers. Just like any other Creole, Tokpisin has developed its own distinct grammatical system. It uses special grammatical words to show tense. It indicates whether the action has finished, or if it's still going on. It also adds a special marker to any verb that has an object. Having said that, Tokpisin has nothing as crazy as the Italian verb paradigms, the Russian genders and consonants, the Mandarin tones and measure words, or the English articles and vowels. Tok Piscine just hasn't been around long enough to accumulate a lot of fancy linguistic fluff like that. In many ways, Tok Pisin is a very typical Creole. But there's one thing about it that's quite special, namely its exalted status. Since 1975, it has been one of the three official languages of Papua New Guinea. It's used in the media, in education, even in Parliament. Very few pigeons have had such a spectacular career. If constructed languages have been stigmatized for the big-eyed idealism for their advocates, pigeons and creoles have been despised for their lowly origins and their supposedly degenerate nature. Even speakers of a pigeon usually think of it as a mangled inferior version of whatever prestige language has provided most of the vocabulary. Few people, besides linguists, see pigeons as prime examples of human linguistic ingenuity. Even fewer have regarded them as potential universal language material. That is unfortunate. If relative structural simplicity was the only criterion, choosing a universal language would be a no-brainer. Just about any expanded pidgin would fit the bill better than any big older language. After all, pidgins are international languages par excellence, created, used and optimized for this purpose by a community of second language speakers. And needless to say, there would be a lot of poetic justice in adopting a language of slaves and poor migrant workers as the global lingua franca. The idea of justice brings us back to the gulf between ought to be and is. There are plenty of high-minded reasons why a universal second language ought to be more neutral and easier to learn than the big lingua franca the world has seen so far. Too bad that big languages have always got big for completely different reasons. Can we at least hope that this might change in the future? Will English ever be replaced by another global lingua franca, neutral or not? Will we even need a global lingua franca in the future? We'll talk about this in the last part of the Universal Language series. Thank you.